Hello and welcome to Yamaha Music's podcast, Artist Insights. My name is Phoebe Ely, and I'm going to be taking you behind the scenes to give you an exclusive insight into the lives and journeys of some of Yamaha's leading artists. Joining me on today's episode, I have got the exceptional Belgian trumpeter, Jerome Bevarts. Jerome's outstanding technical capabilities and sensitive musicality make him a musical force to be reckoned with. His repertoire encapsulates many different eras, from Baroque to contemporary music and jazz. With a flourishing solo career of recitals and concerts with many of the world's leading symphony orchestras, Jerome's incredible playing has also brought him invitations to play at internationally acclaimed music festivals all over the world, including Ars Musica in Belgium, Takefu International Music Festival, the Rheingau Music Festival, and many, many more. Alongside his incredible performing career, Jerome recently accepted the position of visiting trumpet professor at the Royal Academy of Music in London, helping to inspire and pass on his legacy to the next generation of young trumpet players. Jerome, what a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, you've had such a varied career, Jerome. And one thing that struck me is just how young you were when you first won that first competition in 1991, where I believe you were only 16. What did those early years look like for you? And what's your earliest memory of both picking up the trumpet itself for the first time and performing on stage? Well, the very first time I I, I, um, got the chance to play an instrument was, of course, my father who brought it home from his uh, wind band rehearsal and yeah it was love at first sight he is actually also the first uh, person to tell me how to spit into this thing because that's how he said (laughs) it just spit into it um and then uh actually i started um uh, performing or playing little concerts and doing little competitions from the beginning and i'm actually i'm I'm incredibly thankful for that because that's uh, um, something you can you cannot relearn later because it it became normal at a very young age to perform and i mean i remember the very first competitions i did uh, in the first two or three years i always screwed up the end so i played really well and in the last two bars always something happened that's and, interesting yeah. what do you think that was down to well i mean if it, it happened once and that's a bad experience and then your mind automatically goes like now the end, please. Yeah. Please. <laughs> and then, yeah, I did. I did carry that along for a while, actually, in my brain. It's da- it was damaged. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting because I find you know you went on then to win many more competitions. But did that? Did you feel that fear throughout those second and third competitions after you'd won the first one? Did it implement itself? And how did you get rid of it? But it's, I've never ever talked about it, not even with my students. But I, I, I did feel that for quite a while that, you know, towards the end, when you have when you're going that perfect road or I mean, in your eyes at that moment, perfect road, no mistakes is going really well. And then, of course, at the end, you think like, please, yeah. please don't. <laughs> and it just I mean, the, the best school there is, is perform, 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 perform. So then eventually that just goes away. If you have a. Because, you know, it's impossible in our field, you know that, to get rid of bad habits or bad experiences. You can only replace them with good experiences. 
So I guess then at some point, the wage was going more towards the good experience. Oh, I'm so glad they did. Because as I said, you went on to win so many more competitions, which eventually led to you stepping into the role of principal trumpet with the NDR Radio Symphony Hamburg. Could you talk us through what your first day as the principal trumpeter there looked like for such a prestigious orchestra? And what were you feeling? Wow, interesting. My first day, I... I cannot recall the first day exactly i mean i can recall the, the the big feeling you have you know you're you're perfectly prepared of course your first service or day in, in your trial year because uh, in germany you work with trial years or even two years nowadays um so you're perfectly prepared and you don't know what to expect because i didn't know any any single player from that orchestra Wow. Well, after I won the audition, I played once a modern music series um, just as a sub. So it was not completely unknown. But then um, I remember the first days because of the tension. I was just exhausted. Rehearsals started at, at 9.30 and we were finished at 2.30 because it was like very often a radio orchestra. So you, you put the service together, almost no breaks. After that, I was just absolutely exhausted. And I was thinking about... How do these people do that? that? After this, they drive 150 kilometers to go teaching until 10 o'clock. At the end. How is that possible? And then a few years later, you see yourself doing that. So yeah. <laughs> you get used to that. Yeah. Oh, it's so amazing. And I'm wondering how different do you personally feel when preparing to perform for radio as part of a full orchestra versus standing on stage as a soloist with one of the world's leading orchestras about to perform a solo to a live audience? Do they differ? Well, I, I, to be honest, I do feel much more at home standing in front of the orchestra because somehow you, you have more space. <laughs> no, but you do have, of course, more space in, in terms of square meters, but that, it, it is a space in a, in a general meaning because you have a bit more freedom artistically. Um, of course, you have many more notes to play, so it's not about hitting that one note or that one bar, which is so often the... Um, that's the difficult thing about playing in the orchestra that you have to just be spot on when you are needed um because if the trumpet player doesn't hit it where it should be then yeah the whole audience goes like <laughs> <laughs> it's all downhill oh, yeah. so, so that 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 freedom and that extra yeah the the liberty you have um to perform especially recitals where you don't also make your own complete concert program very often. Uh, I love that uh, liberty, liberty. But I do, I mean, it, the power of an orchestra, it's just, it's just incredible. Phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And that feeling, do you get the same, did you get the same feeling before you went on stage? So for example, before you went on to record for the radio symphony orchestra versus that moment before you walk on as a soloist, do they differ mentally in terms of preparation? In terms of preparation, yes. Um, but then again, they all differ mentally and physically because if you have to play, for example, uh, Haydn or so trumpet concerto or something light, Shostakovich, piano and trumpet, um, pieces that are not physically very demanding, then it's all about being fresh, being very, very fresh in the moment versus pieces that are super demanding, Zimmermann or Ligeti or a whole uh, recital program. So there is already very different preparation. And if you if you're gonna if you're going on stage for a short thing, 
where it's all about perfection or if you're going on stage for the whole ride, you know, yeah. for the whole marathon. <laughs> That's a mentally different thing. But I wouldn't say, I mean, I remember the year, the first uh, concert after my trial year was Mala 5 live on television. And then, I mean, that was after the summer break, right? Yeah. <laughs> so no summer break whatsoever. I remember being in Sweden and, and, and playing for three weeks, just playing, the, practicing that symphony and then trying, uh, yeah, to get the, that, that, that good feeling, that good vibe uh, where you think you, you'll do the best job. And, you know, when you stand in front of the stage, just going before going on stage, if that's a Mahler 5 uh, live on television or it's a Haydn concert that I play for my students in the audition training, it's not that much. There is some difference, but, hmm. you know, you can never be too sure. I like that. That's good. And as I mentioned earlier, you've had an incredibly varied career and you perform repertoire from many different genres of music. What made you explore different pathways of music in your own playing? And how did you manage to combine them to work for you personally as a player? Well, that's only the only explanation is my background. I, I, I grew up... In, in Belgium, like in, in, in England, uh, in a wind band, in England it's brass bands. So um, there, first of all, you play a, a big variety, variety of repertoire. I, I always play in, in quite, let's call it serious wind bands and brass bands. So we did competitions and we, yeah, it was, was, was also serious repertoire. Apart from the light film music parts of the concert. So we also did that, of course. That's the first part. And then the second part, I was in a, how do you call that? Musical gymnasium or high school between 15 and 18. Yeah, secondary school. Yeah, yeah. Secondary yeah. school. So that was a, a secondary school where you could study two um, directions. One was uh, theater and the other one was music. And there was also dance in the middle. And uh, we'd be I'm completely in touch and, and in contact with each other, although it was two different fields, but still, I mean, and I had a, my a cappella band, uh, close harmony band, uh, pop band. Uh, I, I mean, I was, of course, also playing classical music there, but that's where the variety came from. I mean, it, I was at border school. So after five o'clock, all the, all the subjects were, you know, were over. And then we just started, for example, with the, piano player for a half an hour or an hour I, I just improvise in Doric key or something like that and then uh, at the end of the night we'd sing some pop tunes together with two or three or four or five people and um, in between that we we'd do a Bach um, pieces arranged for accordion and trumpet all kinds of things yeah yeah incredible and you mentioned singing and I did notice that you know speaking of versatility and repertoire you also have versatility in terms of your instruments so I understand that amidst your very demanding and successful trumpet career you managed to complete a jazz vocal studies degree at the Royal Conservatory of Ghent so where did this love and interest of singing come from and how has that knowledge that you've acquired informed your trumpet playing well the singing as I said before came from from a younger age I always loved these kids choirs and all that singing along all the time I even loved solfege which we have a lot in Belgium I loved that I love singing do re mi fa sol la ti do I was just like I was eating and inhaling music all the time um so that's 
that just was, was just a natural thing. And then um, I do think that singing for any instrumentalist is still our base because the instrument by itself doesn't sound. It sounds by our imagination. So I do think for any instrument, uh, also, of course, very close to wind instrument, but also for a string instrument and piano player, the voice, the singing part can help us tremendously to find your own voice. You know, I see the, the trump as, a, as an extension of, 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 of my body, as, as the mind or of the voice. So uh, singing and, and playing is, you can't get much closer, I guess. No, I can understand that. And I'm wondering, touching back on what you said right at the start about, you know, you getting that fear towards the end. Did you have that when, for, for instance, you were performing a singing solo? So when you were singing the jazz piece uh, while you were at the Conservatory of Ghent, did you have that same fear or was that very different because it was something that was inter- internalised in you? No, well, I mean, just, we're making a bigger thing. We're making an elephant from a <laughs> mosquito now. Um, it was not like I didn't have a trauma about this, but I do remember the first i mean the first singing experiences were, were fun right they were in, in in pop concerts late shows never started a gig before 11 o'clock in the evening mostly around one o'clock so i mean you're not stressed there is uh, yeah and there's things floating around before you go on stage so <laughs> we won't mention them but i can imagine <laughs> yes it's a different life so that's why my father was really happy to me to choose for the classical trumpet again (laughs) Uh, which i can understand now very well being a father myself um no um but i do find the idea of standing on stage and singing there is nothing more naked than that you must know that yeah (laughs) as a singer myself yeah it is it's a very exposing and vulnerable thing and because it's internalized in you it's your voice you know it's very to me, I, I, you know, I can, I have so much respect for instrumentalists like yourself who are able to put that into the instrument. And as you said, singing is a real bass. Um, but yeah, it is. It's a different thing because it's part of you and it's your makeup and you know your humanity. It's very, very difficult to get your head around. Um, but I suppose, did you manage to do that when you stood up in comparison to your trumpet playing? Was it? Did you have the same feeling when you were doing both? Well, I, t- I try to not separate them. So also when I practice, when I have a recital where I'm also singing uh, chansons by Jacques Brel or or some some standards, then I practice that just mixed, completely mixed. And also, I mean, my warm up in the morning, if I play an hour in the morning, 50% of that would be singing. I mean, not singing a song, but just singing the phrases that I want to play. And also for trumpet, I often do concone exercises on the trumpet. these kind of things just on the trumpet so you just and and, i mean my teacher reinhold friedrich my like he's my 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 trumpet god um, (laughs) he always insisted and it was fun because a, a few weeks ago we were together here at my place for three days giving a course together and then we exchanged ideas and we practiced and we did exercises together, just basic exercises. Really, I mean, imagine playing one phrase and then chromatically up, you know? It's like you do 50, 50 times the same phrase, but just... And then he made me realize, no, 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 you have to do even that you have to do in a musical way. Yeah, definitely. Everything you do. So it's all about music, about singing, about about phrasing. So 
Yeah, I try not to separate. So I sing the phrase for myself and then I play it. And then I, I hope the that there's... Way. Exactly. Yeah, amazing. And I'm wondering, you've obviously had such a huge career. And I wonder, who was your biggest source of inspiration to get you to the point that you're at today? I have several people. The first incredibly important person for me is my father. <laughs> but that's still, um, that's still my... Yeah, I mean, now it's different it's not my guide figure now but yeah he's just i just feel him all the time um i have i had a very i mean touching what i had a super happy and lucky childhood which not everybody can oh, say it but i'm so can glad to hear that only be super thankful for that and then the first musical person is etienne de lombarde um that's actually he he gave solfege in my um secondary school so three years border school, six hours a week of solfege with this guy. And that guy was actually a jazz piano player. He was a jazz pianist, but he had a heart problem, so he had to stop performing. But he was a genius. You know, he was that you know how our solfege looked like. That's how the lessons were. That's so cool. I mean, that is enough to get any child or young person fully engaged. I love Incredible that. Incredible guy. Incredible. So inspiring. And he studied, studied psychology when he was like 50. Wow. He studied psychology at the university at the same time. So he was a true pedagogue. So that was the first huge influence on me. And then the trumpet, trumpetistically, um, the first huge influence for me was Håkan Hardenberg. Um, I bought all his recordings, listened to them, played along the pieces that I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was my first like big trumpet hero, uh, apart from Wyndham Marsalis. But that was, yeah, I was more like a Hokan guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, also influenced because, because, I mean, the Belgian trumpet school at that time was uh, very influenced by Paris, by Pierre Thibault. And that's where Hokan studied. So we were, we were towards that direction with the nice articulation style all this yeah french uh, style and then um again i mean you have to be lucky in life i guess um i met through uh, some belgian brass friends um i met um reinhold friedrich and that was yeah that's uh, humanly and pedagogically and also uh on the trumpet uh, the biggest influence I've ever had um, because that's pure um, <laughs> the nicest thing he's a big time soloist right and the nicest thing I can imagine saying about him that um, if, when you're a soloist you have a your ego might be a little bit enlarged right but the great thing about him that his heart is still 10 times bigger than uh, than the ego oh. he's just seriously he's just an incredible personality there's so much love inside of this person yeah. and it's like, as if he's teaching love that's so wonderful it's, it's very strange to because i don't remember you know i don't remember to him telling me like you have to practice this you have to practice this and absolutely not not at all it was just like he was sort of when you were going in a direction he was doing this or a bit like this yeah yeah 
Would you say that you try to emulate that in your own teaching now at the Royal Academy? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Um, well, with my students in Hanover um, in, and in, in London, I, I try, I mean, of course, one is automatically influenced by the people, right, who were the influence. And then automatically, um, I, in my teaching is a, how do you say, a, um, um, a putting together uh, of all the teachers, you know? Yes. So I have the French influence uh, by Pierre Thibault. I have the American influence by Chikovic, uh, Vincent Chikovitz. So it's all about wind and air through Klaus Schuwerk, who was at that time assistant from Reinhold. And then Reinhold is like a big all over kind of person. So, of course, my, my teaching is automatically a mix to that. But the, I, I wouldn't also want to um, put my own teaching in a box because I'm... I'm experimenting every single day oh lucky students jerome lucky lucky students very jealous of them well you'll see we'll see because with experimenting with experiments you also make mistakes so (laughs) (laughs) the the students are also a part of that part (laughs) oh i'm sure they absolutely adore you and it's easy to see why and as i said before you know you've had this massively successful diverse career and i'm wondering now for you on a personal level what has been the biggest obstacle that you've had to face to get to the point in your career that you're at today? Um, to keep the willpower on the high level. For me, it's believing in myself all the time. And, you know, it's, I think in, in artists' life or when you're, um, you're cre- a part of a creating process, we're trying out things... We're flying on a high and then we bam, we fall down, <laughs> we bang down. And then to try to equilibrate that, to try to guide that uh, and always keep going. Um, I don't think there's like, uh, there has been one obstacle, uh, but yeah, believing in oneself, uh, what one does, um, that's been really important for myself and then keep going. But also that keep going at now, I'm also enjoying now a few months of breathing out. I must be be honest to say that. I'm going to start to make some more things now, recordings and stuff like that. But I had a, a really a joy in breathing out also for a while to tank new energy. Yeah, many artists have said that it's sort of a time for rebirth and a time for really reflecting and how you want to move forwards. And I suppose now we're all maneuvering our way into a new industry right now at this moment in time. And I do wonder, what does that look like for you personally and professionally, Jerome? What do you hope to achieve five years from now? Hmm. If you would ask me that five years ago, I would be able to tell you that exactly. Wow. Uh, But now I, I, I... I want to be happy, actually. I just want to be a happy person. <laughs> I love that. And, How do you define and, and, happiness? Um, being content with what you do, right? I mean, so that, of course, that includes my career big time. But more than ever, it includes my um, my fiancé, my son, of course. I, mean, I just did a camper tour of 12 days with my son, oh, just wow. he and me alone. <laughs> um, it's It's a... A mixture, you know, also students with my students in Hanover and in London. That's something since I'm teaching, this is feels so good. It feels like you're, I mean, we're just trying to help people, right? It just feels like the right job education. Yeah, absolutely. 
That's it feels amazing. like a wonderful job. And yeah, in, in terms of performing, I want to I want to keep on a few things. I want to keep on um, um, expanding the repertoire in terms of um, playing certain pieces all over and over again. So people see them as standard pieces like Ligeti Mysteries of the Macabre, some of the Gruber pieces, some Hosokawa pieces. So I think we, we, we just need to, you know, it takes a while until, or it took a while until, for example, Bernd Alois Zimmermann, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen for Trumpet and Orchestra became standard repertoire. And we need to stand, we, we need to, to, we need a few more pieces to become to help them to become standard. That's one thing. And the other th thing, I still have that dream. I, I, I once read a book from Sting because I was a huge Sting fan. And uh, um, I still have that dream that you have these concerts where you have the, 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 the rocker and the chanson person and the classical person and the jazz person. You have them all in one place and, and you know, unite more than ever, unite uh, with music. Um, and, and, and not in a crossover kind of way that we want to uh, play Bach in a jazzy way, but that, you know, that I think many people just say, no, no, I like jazz, I don't like classical music. Mm. How can you say that? Then you go listen to Stravinsky or to, you know, to, to other, or Shostakovich, or if you say you like classical and you don't like jazz, how can you say that? I mean, <laughs> yeah, so this this has always been really a goal for me to 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 try to bring people together um yeah people of different styles together through music i have no doubt you're going to do that sharon i've got a very strong feeling <laughs> <laughs> considering what you've achieved throughout your career so far but this now is which i really liked there is this um brass ensemble in in germany called zalaputia brass and a lot of my former students uh, play there and they're making CDs and programs which look exactly like that. So I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you. That's the most exciting part. That, that yeah. You have the, the next generation doing that. Absolutely. I can imagine that. And as I said, you've delighted so many different audiences, just like your youngsters are doing now, uh, with your incredible artistry. And I just wonder if you could travel back in time to one of your own performances to watch it as an audience member, which one would it be and why? As an audience member, okay. As an audience member, I would go listen. That's not a soloistic uh, performance. I would go listen to Mahler Third Symphony with the Concertgebouw Orchestra and Maris Janssens, where I played the the principal trumpet part in that. Wow, why is that? Uh, maybe Carnegie Hall or Concertgebouw. I don't remember. We had a big tour with that. It, it wasn't. It was like a. Um, an almost one time in a life experience. I mean, there are some some concerts that you you will never forget, right? Uh, and this was this is the highest on my list. Um, after the last note, you look around and every single face that I saw was crying, including conductor. I still have become completely emotional when I think about it. Oh, so amazing. this was emotionally the the strongest. So that's why I think if I want to listen to that as a as an audience member, that would be the one. Wow, definitely. That's so interesting. And do you feel that spiritual connection when you are up on stage at moments like that? Can you feel that music is more than just music? Of course, of course. Well, I mean. I do I try to do everything before I go on stage to have that 
possibility of free feeling, you know, um, that means you have to be perfectly prepared. You have to be very secure of yourself that you can do that job in whatever piece you have to play or whatever recital. Sometimes it's like a two hour recital. So you have to be, you have to know that you can, you can do it. That's the first thing, of course. And then, uh, I mean, I used to do like an hour and a half of yoga before going on stage, all these kind of, I have my, another method now what I'm, what I'm using. But yeah, I'm always also trying to to be mentally in the stage that you can speak in the best possible way to the audience. Yes, yeah. There's also uh, solosti performances that I would I would love to listen, but just uh, yeah, just because of the variety, maybe like a recital with uh, with Ligeti and Jacques Brel and uh, Inesco, like these kind of things. But yeah. The most intense musical experience was definitely in uh, with the Concert Global Orchestra. Oh, so inspiring. So awe-inspiring. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. And I was just going to say, it's been such a privilege to share this time with you and to learn about all of your incredible experiences in your career and your wisdom. But I have now reached my final question, Jerome, unfortunately, which is, what piece of advice would you give to an 18-year-old Jerome? <laughs> Yeah. How honest should I be? Oh, very. Absolutely want honesty. Stop wasting your time. That's what I would tell myself. No, I I, I mean, you know, you, you can't you can never turn back the clock. I when I was around 18, you know, because I started to practice pretty disciplined on a very young age. And then when I was 18, I took a break. So, you know, since you're telling the age 18, I'd have to say, stop fooling around, go practice. Um, there's, there's, you know, I think that the, the most important thing to reach your goal is the willpower, right? So um, it's not only about practice, it's about so many things together. Um, and if you're an unhappy person or a person with a long face, you can forget any solo career. I mean, and I think you have to, you have to bring the powers definitely nowadays. It's so much more social. You have to bring energy, power. You have to bring so much. Also as a teacher, you can't, you can't just sit there and say, mm, okay, go again, please. That E flat was a bit flat. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me today on Artist Insights. You have been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for your nice work. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to learn more about Yamaha and our artists, please do tell your friends about the show and subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We'll see you next time for another episode of Artist Insights with Yamaha.